Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are watching online. You know, I often talk to university students who tell me how some of their professors seem to delight in ridiculing the Christian faith and often make them feel like fools for believing in God and in Christianity. These professors convey an attitude not unlike that of Oxford biology professor Richard Dawkins, author of the book The God Delusion, in which he suggests that religious belief is infantile. A childish delusion that should have disappeared a long time ago as the human race has evolved and matured and grown in knowledge and intelligence. In the same way that childish beliefs like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy are abandoned as a person matures. Dawkins' assumption is that people of faith have stopped thinking. They have lost touch with reality and have a blind trust that is not based on clear evidence to the contrary. He writes that faith needs to be critically examined, and delusions need to be exposed and then removed. Now, Dawkins is correct when he says we all need to examine our faith. In fact, Dr. Alistair McGrath, the former atheist and professor at Oxford, has written two books in which he examines Dawkins' beliefs and claims and masterfully demonstrates through the use of rigorous scientific, historical, and philosophical arguments that Dawkins' intellectual case against God doesn't stand up to critical examination. According to McGrath, atheists and agnostics, and not just people of faith, can believe or have faith in things that are not grounded in the evidence. Therefore, whether we are atheists or agnostics or Christ followers, we are wise to critically examine our beliefs and the basis for those beliefs because our beliefs greatly impact our values and the direction of our lives. Well, this is the reason we're doing the Why Believe series to move us from merely having unsubstantiated opinions to helping us to know what it is we believe and why we believe it. Some of you have been exposed to a lot of reasons not to believe in God. In this series, I want to introduce you to some compelling reasons to believe in God, the God of the Bible, of the Christian faith. But before we do so, I'd like us to just dedicate our time to God in prayer. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, for those who are followers of Jesus, may this be a time that they are strengthened in their faith in you. For those who are seeking, may they in our time together find compelling reasons to put their trust in you. I pray that you will focus our thoughts, that you will soften our hearts, and give us the courage to respond to where it is your truth takes us. 
For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we started out last week looking at two major arguments for the existence of God. The first being the cosmological argument. Cosmological means the reason or explanation for the universe. What caused the world to be? How did everything get here and where did it come from? Well, for years, scientists insisted that the universe has always existed. And that was the end of the argument as far as they were concerned. However, as we saw last time, the scientific evidence strongly supports the idea that the universe had a beginning in what scientists often refer to as the Big Bang. One of the main evidences for this is the second law of thermodynamics which says that the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, which is called entropy. J.P. Moreland says, the universe is like a car with gasoline in the tank. As it runs on a highway, it is using up its fuel. And since it hasn't used up its fuel, we know it couldn't have been running forever. Because if it had been running forever, well, it would have used up its fuel and it wouldn't be running any longer. In the same way, if the universe always existed, then according to the second law of thermodynamics, it would have used up its energy by now. However, it hasn't, and so it must have had a beginning. Now, according to the law of causality, if the universe had a beginning, then there must have been a beginner or a cause for its existence. And that cause of the universe, or that beginner, must be something much greater and beyond the universe. Something beyond time, space, matter, and physical energy. Something very similar to what we commonly refer to as God. Dr. Stephen Hawking, physicist at Cambridge University, says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Those are amazing words coming from a self-proclaimed atheist. But this is where many of the scientific community find themselves. On the basis of their own research, they reluctantly acknowledge that there is a God who caused the beginning, the creation of the universe. And yet, many do not accept that it is the God of the Bible, but rather believe that this God is unknowable. And yet, Mark Middleberg responds to their skepticism, saying, you can call the cause of the universe what you will. The evidence from the origin of the universe provides a lot of information of what this God is like. And the description sounds amazingly similar to the God of the Bible, the one we read about in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second argument we looked at 
is the teleological argument, which asks, who is responsible for the symmetry, the fine-tuning, the order and the complexity of all that we see in the world around us? When we see a computer or an iPhone or a car, our experience tells us that they are the product of an intelligent designer. If you look up and you see the words Edmonton, the city of champions, hovering up there among the clouds, do you assume it's a chance production of an unusual cloud formation? Of course not. You assume that someone made that sign a long, long, long time ago. We love you, Edmonton. We feel your pain. But the point is, no natural law ever produces a message. Our universe exhibits an incredible design, complexity, and purposeful order that defies any naturalistic explanation. As I pointed out last time, scientists have discovered that everything in our universe seems to be so precisely fine-tuned that if the elect electromagnetic force or the gravitational force were slightly greater or weaker, if our sun was a little larger or smaller, a little younger or older, a little closer or more distant from the Earth, if our moon or the planet Jupiter was a little larger or smaller or a little closer or further away, there would be no life on our planet. David Page, one of America's eminent cosmologists, has calculated the odds of our life-sustaining, finely-tuned universe forming by chance to be 1 in 10 to the 123rd power a number that scientists admit is so minute it can be completely ruled out. Truly, King David was right when he said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But not only... Thank you for that. Keep saying amen. Absolutely. Okay. But not only does the universe point to an intelligent designer, so does life itself. The brain, for example, weighs just over three pounds. But according to the late Dr. Carl Sagan, the agnostic astronomer, the information content of the brain expressed in bits is probably comparable to the total number of connections among neurons, about 100 trillion or 10 to the 14 power bits. If written out in English, he says, that information would fill some 20 million volumes, as many as the world's largest libraries. The equivalent of 20 million books is inside the heads of every one of us. And I know, you're thinking the same thing I am. You talking about my brain? Well, yes, he is. Even if the circuits aren't all firing, Sagan admits the brain is absolutely astonishing. 
And so we are left with the most significant question. Could such a sophisticated design and engineering have occurred by chance? Well, biochemist and skeptic Francis Crick, who shared the Nobel Prize for discovering the molecular structure of DNA, has said an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have, to, which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Sir Fred Hoyle, mathematician, founder of the steady-state theory of astrophysics, one of the leading evolutionists in the world, calculated that it would take 10 to the 40,000th power for chance to produce even the simplest cell. That is the number 10 followed by 40,000 zeros. He then went on to say the probability of life evolving to greater and greater complexion, and, I'm sorry, complexity and organization as it is now by chance is the same probability as having a tornado tear through a junkyard and forming out the other end a Boeing 747 jetliner. Random impersonal chance does not produce complexity and organization, only greater chaos. In his book, The Intelligent Universe, Hoyle concludes with this. As biochemists discover more and more about the awesome complexity of life, it is apparent that its chances of originating by accident are so minute that they can be completely ruled out. Life cannot have arisen by chance. Folks, there is only one logical conclusion from all of this. And that is there is an intelligent designer of life, a very intelligent, powerful, creative designer who we believe is the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 1.19. He said, God has made it plain, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Which brings us to the third major argument for the existence of God, the moral argument. This argument asks a different kind of question. It asks, how does one account for the fact that in human beings everywhere, there is a kind of moral code that provides us with an inner sense of what is right and wrong. C.S. Lewis has said, there is an influence or a command inside each of us trying to get us to behave a certain way. Lewis explains that globally, people appeal to some sense of of right and wrong. People argue with one another and say things like, well, that's my seat, I had it first. 
They appeal to a person's sense of fairness. They say, you know, what if I did the same thing to you? What if I took your seat? How would you feel about that? People all over the world, from all walks of life, from children right through to adults, have this innate sense of oughtness, of what's right and wrong. Now, Christians believe that our innate sense of moral values has been placed there by God. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Now what Paul is saying in that rather complicated sounding passage is quite apart from the laws and the principles recorded in the scriptures, all people, Gentiles and Jews alike, have an internal moral compass that's been put there by God. We each have a conscience that lets us know what is right and wrong. We all know that it is right to forgive, to be unselfish, to help a person that's in need, to be truthful, to be fair, to be kind. We also know that it's wrong to murder or to physically torture or sexually abuse someone or to lie or to steal. Now, the Bible explains that if we go against our conscience long enough and continue to do evil, we will slowly corrupt the sensitivity of our conscience and it will no longer be a reliable warning system to us. But the point is, when God created us in his image, he wrote his moral values on our hearts. Now, those who do not believe in God naturally deny that objective, God-ordained moral values exist. Naturalists or evolutionists believe that our moral impulse is nothing more than the product of blind evolutionary process that selects out moral traits that enhance survival and reproduction. Now, immediately, one asks... Where is the evidence for this? Where is the evidence that gases, germs, and or genes are capable of creating a moral code of values by chance? I mean, we've already established that life originating by chance is so minute, it can be completely ruled out. If the chance formation of a single cell is calculated to be impossible, then how can we realistically believe that a moral code of values in those cells happen by sheer chance? But even beyond this, the implications of such a perspective are truly stark. To begin with, if our moral impulse is the product of blind evolutionary process, then we have no real basis to hold people accountable for their actions. 
Philosopher Thomas Nagel says, if we are simply a collection of neural impulses, chemical reactions, and bone and muscle movements, it is hard not to conclude that we're helpless and not responsible for our actions. Think of it this way. If a hammer is used as a weapon to kill someone, is the hammer morally responsible for that death? Well, no. The hammer is just a tool. In a sense, the hammer is just a machine. The person using the hammer is responsible. Yet, if we, based on evolutionary theory, are essentially machines, then we are no more responsible for our actions than the hammer we use, logically speaking. Secondly, if we are a product of chance, then our morality really can't be trusted. Now, Charles Darwin himself, now remember, he's the guy that initially came up with this theory of evolution. Charles Darwin himself was deeply troubled by this. He said, if our morals have been developed from the mind of lower animals like that of monkeys, for example, we cannot be sure if they are true or of value, which means they can't be trusted. I can't agree with you more, Charles. And then thirdly, if our moral impulse is the result of blind evolutionary process, then all morality is subjective. In other words, all moral values are relative to individuals and cultures. And yet, you see, we can't and we don't live that way. For example, Paul Copen was speaking at a university in New York. And during the question and answer time, a female student stood up and charged him with imposing his morality on others. Now, in accusing Paul of imposing his morality on others, she was actually appealing to an absolute moral standard, which was, it's wrong to impose your morality on others. But you see, we do this all the time. We ultimately appeal to some absolute standard. We have all kinds of people today, including atheists and agnostics, challenging us, calling out to us and saying, we ought to fight for the rights of abused women around the world. We ought to fight for the needs of the poor, and on and on. Many noble causes like this. Now, I'm totally supportive of these causes, of course. But strictly speaking, when people say we ought to fight for the rights of others, aren't these people trying to impose their morality on us? I mean, I want to ask them, particularly those who are atheists and agnostics, who says we ought to do this? Where did this oughtness come from? Who put that oughtness in you? How do you explain it? After all, if there is no God and we're just the result of evolutionary process, then where do we get this idea that human life is so special? 
and that we ought to be investing our lives in helping others. I mean, where does that come from? Now, Dr. Copen responded to this woman's accusation that he was imposing his morality on others by asking her a question. He said to her, Ma'am, if you're walking down a dark alley and you're about to be attacked and there's a bystander who could help you, would you want that bystander to impose his morality on your attacker? You see, it's easy to claim morality is relative when it doesn't immediately affect us. But when someone violates our rights, when someone abuses us or steals our property, we all appeal to absolute standards and say, this is wrong. The reality is properly functioning people, even those who do not believe in God or absolute moral values, simply believe that some things like murder and torture and rape and child abuse and racial genocide, just to name a few, are wrong. In fact, C.S. Lewis documented in The Abolition of Man that the same sorts of moral standards like don't murder, don't take another's property, don't defraud, continually surface across civilizations and cultures and throughout history. He says these moral principles are not invented in the sense that we make them up. No. He says they are discovered because God has put them on our heart. And then fourthly, if our moral impulse is the product of blind evolutionary process, then we have no basis for human dignity or human rights. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he speaks about this particular issue at length, and I want to give credit to him for his insights uh, on this particular point. Keller references Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz, who wrote an essay entitled, Where Do Rights Come From? Dershowitz points to three possible sources of human rights. The first is God. Since we are all created in the image of God, every human is sacred. Now, he rejects this as an answer since so many people, he says, are agnostic. Now, I'm not sure how he came to that conclusion, but it is what it is. The second possibility, he says, is that human rights come from nature, from natural law. However, he rejects this as well because he says nature thrives on violence and survival of the fittest. And he believes that there is no way to derive human dignity from the way things really work in nature. And I agree with him. A third possibility, he says, is that human rights are created by us, the people who write the laws. This theory argues it is in the interests of societies to create human rights because honoring individual rights means that in the long run, 
everyone in the community is better off. However, he doesn't accept this one either. Because what if the majority decides it is not in their interest to grant human rights? If rights are nothing but the creation of the majority, then there is nothing to appeal to when the human rights are legislated out of existence. The late Yale University law professor Arthur Leff in a brilliant essay says, in the absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give to one key question. Who among us ought to be able to declare the law that ought to be obeyed? He says, either God exists or he does not. But if he does not exist, nothing and no one can take his place. What he's saying is, if there is no God, then there is no way to say, for anyone to say that this action is right and that this action is wrong. All we can do is indicate our preference, our conviction, our belief, or our likes. Which leaves us with a conundrum. Who gets the right to put their subjective moral feelings into law? If you say, well, the majority has the right to make the law, then what do you do if the majority decides that they're going to exterminate the minority? Which is happening in a country right now. Tim Keller says, if you say, well, well, no, no, that's just wrong to do that, well, then he says you're back to square one. Because who says that the majority has a moral obligation not to kill the minority? Who says? Why should your moral convictions take precedence over the convictions of others? Dr. Leff ends in a most shocking way. He says, as things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. All together now, he says, says who? God help us. You see, Leff is saying there are absolute moral values that we all know exist. But without God, we have no basis to justify them. Keller says there's only one way out of this conundrum. We can pick up the biblical account of things and see if it explains our moral sense any better than the secular view does. If the world was made by a God of peace, of justice, and love, then that is why we know that violence, oppression, and hate is wrong.
If the world is fallen, broken, and needs to be redeemed, that explains the violence and the disorder that we see. If you believe that human rights are a reality, then it makes much more sense that God exists than he does not. If you insist on a secular view of the world and yet you continue to pronounce some things to be right and some things to be wrong, then I hope, he says, that you see the deep disharmony between the world that your intellect has devised and the real world and God that your heart knows exist. Dr. Craig sums it up like this. The fact is, objective moral values do exist, and we all know it. Actions like murder, torture, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Even evolutionist Professor Michael Ruse admits, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things are really wrong. And so concludes Dr. Craig, if objective values cannot exist without God and objective values do exist as we've just established, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. I'm going to wrap up with just one more argument, and that is the power of personal experience. The fact is millions of trustworthy people have felt the presence of God have sensed the leading of God in their lives and have experienced his strength in times of trouble and challenge. Certainly it's very probable that a deluded or a deceitful person might manufacture a claim to some kind of experience with God. But we're not talking about a few people here or even a few hundred people. No, we're talking about thousands of years of history. We're talking about multiple millions of people in which the best people, the finest thinkers on our planet, well-adjusted, non-deluded, non-marijuana smoking people all over the world have borne witness to a real experience with God. Even in my own life, there have been times when I was blindsided by a loss or bad news for my doctor that I cried out to him and I have sensed his presence, his peace, his power and his love and comfort in my life. There have been occasions in my life when, I, when he seemed so close, I felt like I could reach out and touch him. On other occasions when his presence and his whisper was so real, I was pushed back into my seat. Christians all over the world 
could tell stories of unforgettable moments when God touched down on their life and miraculously answered prayer, gave amazing guidance, support, peace, joy, and comfort. I want you to hear the story of just one such person. Watch this. I started, I started drinking when I was 12. When I was probably 15 or 16, that's when my relationship with my stepfather became extremely volatile because by that age, I'm talking back now and I'm fueled with alcohol and I'm fueled with drugs. And I remember one particular incident when I was, I was brought home by the police. It was like two o'clock in the morning and I was begging them not to know. I said, please don't, you know, wake up my stepfather. And the night that that came to a head, my stepfather and I really went at it and he was exasperated with me and told my mom it was, it was me or him. So I left and and that is how I ended up with nowhere to live. I lived on the street by age 16, already consumed by addictions. By 19, I was a single parent with a heavy cocaine addiction, living in numb darkness and oblivious to the danger and the violence that came with this lifestyle. The people that would come in and out of my home on a frequent basis were scary people. They were scary to me thinking about it now. My parenting 101, my, my being a, a good parent was getting people to leave all their guns on the counter as they came in to our, our home because you know, what kind of parent would let their friends sit around the table with the gun in their belt? I mean, I just, I think about it now and it just seems so insane, but it was so logical to me at the time. Uh, but I, I subjected my daughter to that and so many things could have gone badly. Seeing so many friends die young, I eventually fled my addiction and the people that came with it in an effort to give my daughter a better life. But I could not flee from the empty, bottomless pit in my soul. I sought what I thought I wanted. A good job, a house, a marriage, then a better job, then a better home. I was living this picket fence life, but I remained empty and the marriage eventually ended. I found temporary freedom when I bought a motorcycle. I loved riding and being on the open road. I'd reinvented myself once again. But it was a false and temporary freedom. Over the years, even the dark ones, God had placed Christians in my life. So I had heard about them and asked many questions, but I wasn't receptive to the idea. I couldn't grasp having faith in something I could not see, hear, or mathematically solve. I needed proof. But then something happened that would change me forever. On the May long weekend in 2008, uh, I got a phone call that no parent ever, ever wants to get. And that was from a police officer saying that uh, your daughter's been in an accident and you need to get to Foothills Hospital right away. And when I first walked into her hospital room, I thought for certain 
that uh, she directed me to the wrong place because the little girl lying in that bed, I did not look like my daughter. She was covered in blood and her eyes were swollen shut and her head was in this horrible contraption. And it was so, I felt so helpless. And I remembered really, really quickly that cry, you know, to God. He was the only person I knew, I knew was gonna help me. And I really started negotiating and asked him to, to spare, to spare my daughter, to, to, to heal her, to, to help her, to help, to help me. And, and I just felt this calm come over me when I had, when I had cried out in that way. And five days later, Danica left the hospital with virtually no evidence that she had gone through the rear window of a car. She had had it still to this day, just has the little tiny scar on her nose, the, her, her spleen was intact. Everything had just seemed to have gone away. There was no denying who had stepped into that room at that moment. I met my future husband at a biker rally and he invited me to Center Street. I felt at ease there. Eventually, through the teachings and through Freedom Session, I gave my brokenness over to the Lord and he began to heal my broken heart. I no longer ride to escape pain. I ride to feel the true freedom of connecting with God. It's, it's been a pretty cool experience, um, just, just going through that journey and really understanding what following Christ means, what being a Christian means. It is literally handing your heart over to Him and letting Him repair it for you and putting it back in. Literally, that's what you're doing. I am living proof that our God is a God of miracles. He can repair anyone's heart and transform anyone's life. What I feel about myself now that I've got God, it is just the most peaceful, accepting, it's, it's euphoric. Isn't that a great story? Amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, I know it's only one story, but there are thousands, I dare say millions, of similar type stories. And I'll acknowledge that the argument of personal experience doesn't hold up very well by itself. But you lay it alongside all the other arguments and you just can't deny that God is a living reality. The truth is, if there is no objective personal God, then we are nothing more than a fluke of nature with no purpose, with no meaning in life. It means that this world is controlled by nothing but impersonal force, and we stumble through life with no clear sense of direction.
It means when you die, your candle goes out and that's it. Your existence ends and you will never again see or relate to your loved ones. That is the hopelessness of a life without God. I'm here to tell you that there is a God and that he is not silent. Our God is the awesome, majestic, invisible, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present, sovereign Lord of the universe. And my question of you in closing is, do you know him? Not do you know about him, but do you know him? Have you experienced his reality in your life? The Bible says that God has and is pursuing you. He is seeking to reveal his reality to you. Are you open to him? Are you seeking him, looking for him? In Romans 1, we read that every person knows in their heart that there is a God. It's intuitive. The problem is many people suppress the truth. They avoid God because they want to continue to be the master of their own universe. They don't want God messing with their lives. Second Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter describes people like that. He says, they're people who deliberately ignore and suppress the truth so that they can follow their own evil desires. Like Aldous Huxley, who rejected the Christian faith and chose a life of meaninglessness without God because, in his own words, he believed that putting his trust in God would interfere with his sexual freedom. Augustine, in his confession, said, I kept postponing my conversion to Christianity. I kept praying to God, Lord, make me chaste but not yet. He knew that trusting God meant surrendering his life totally to the Lord and that there were certain things in his life he wasn't prepared to surrender and so he avoided putting his trust in the God of creation. Friend, if you aren't prepared to put your trust in God because you sincerely are needing more reasons to believe then keep searching. Keep asking God, however you perceive him to be, to reveal himself to you. Because if you're sincere, if you're open, he will reveal himself to you. I do caution you, though. Do not make the same mistake that Socrates made, who spent his life questioning everything and never really putting his trust in anything. And at the end of his life, the only thing that he knew for sure was that he didn't know anything for sure. That is despair. And it comes to those who never make a decision. On the other hand, if you are looking for reasons not to believe, because you don't want God messing with your life, then just acknowledge what you're doing. Acknowledge it. And remember this.
pretending that God isn't there doesn't mean he isn't there or won't hold you accountable for the decisions that you make or don't make. Make no mistake, the God of the Bible is good. He is loving. He is gracious. He's merciful. He's faithful and true. This very God loves you so much that he sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to become a human being, to ultimately die for you and for me so that our sins could be paid for and that our relationship with God could be restored. But the Bible teaches us that God is not mocked, that we are not to presume on his love or on his grace. It says, do not delay this matter. Now is the time. Now is the time to put our trust in him. Even now, he is speaking to some of you. He's saying, come on, stop running from me. Stop pretending that you don't need me. Stop living like I don't exist. Humble yourself and open up your life to me and discover the joy of my salvation and the forgiveness that comes through my son, Jesus. Find out how much I love you and want to bless your life and give you a peace and a freedom such as you've never known. How long will you keep God at a safe, comfortable distance? May whatever will be most important to you moments after you die be most important to you right now. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, I am so glad right now that this is not a futile thing that I'm doing by lifting up my voice to you in prayer. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that you are there, that you are listening, and that you care. Strengthen the faith and the confidence of every believer with the reminder that our faith in God is set on a firm foundation, on a true and a biblical foundation on a rational foundation and that we have no reason to shrink back or to cower when someone challenges or ridicules our faith in you. And Lord, I pray for those who are sincerely seeking you. Give them the courage to honestly weigh the evidence and give them the humility to respond in faith to where the truth takes them. Friends, in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer that I'm going to invite you to pray. And if you're here and you're sensing that God's calling out to you right now to trust him with your life and you want to do that, you want to be serious about your trust and your faith in him. 
I want to invite you as we just wait for a few moments to make your way up here. Just come up here and we're going to say this little prayer together. And then we'll dismiss you. But if you feel God tugging at your heart, if you know that you have some business to do with him, I want to invite you just to come up here right now. Prayer partners, I want you to come up right now too. Just be ready to be available to pray with those who are coming forward. to invite you to pray this prayer with me in your heart. Those of you who have come forward, those of you perhaps who know you should be here, but maybe you don't have the courage right now. We just pray this prayer to the Lord. Some of you who are believers, you know, as I have studied and prepared for this series, my faith has been strengthened. And the reality of, is that the God that we serve is very real. And those of us who say we believe in him, we must understand that he has a purpose for our life. He is calling us to follow him, to not play games, to not have this mental idea of him, but to follow him faithfully. What is he saying to you? And even as I pray this prayer, perhaps you need to be praying your own prayer to him. signing up in a new way as his follower and committing to following his spirit as his spirit directs you. Anyways, just pray this prayer with me right now in your heart. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for speaking to me and for calling me to come home to you in faith. I want to thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son Jesus to earth to die for my sins. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I want to turn from my sins. Please forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Come into my life right now. Begin to make me like Jesus, I pray. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you're here at the altar, and there are prayer partners around and they would love to just pray with you. They'd love to just interact with you briefly. Um, if, if you feel that that's not necessary, that's fine. But I want you to know that they are here. They want to encourage you in any way that they can. 
those of you who prayed that prayer out there, make your way down here and allow these prayer partners to pray with you before they go. Again, they want to encourage you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 